Unlucky number 13 as we reach a record number of managerial changes in the Premier League season as Potter's magic runs out. But don't forget, it's going to be different under this new ownership. We're not going to see the same kind of managerial turnover at Chelsea anymore. Maybe Brendan Rodgers can return to Stamford Bridge after he's exited Leicester. On the other hand, new old boy Roy Hodgson is trying to change Palace's fortunes. Speaking of fortunes, how much did Man City spend on Jack Grealish again? Seems like a bargain now. Just like Isak at Newcastle, who seems like a steal, just like Newcastle stealing Man United's top four hopes. Welcome to the Football Diary Podcast. Guys, welcome to the pod. Miles, thank you for that amazing intro. Um, it's good to have Dave, both Dave and Miles with me again today. It's great when it's the three of us, but it's been a strange 48 hours in the Premier League this weekend because we're not talking about matches at the top of the agenda like we normally do. It's two managerial casualties, as Miles mentioned earlier. And the big one of the day, really, I think, Graham Potter, he's finally left Chelsea. I say left, he's been kicked out the door, hasn't he, after a defeat to Aston Villa. No shame in that, but I mean, the writing was on the wall for a pretty long time for Graham Potter, wasn't it? But I want to dissect really exactly what went wrong under Potter's tenure. I'll start with you, Miles. What is it about the Graham Potter and Chelsea kind of dynamic that just didn't work? There's so many things we've spoken about during this um, whole podcast since he's been there for the last six months. But it was a, a terrible match, wasn't it, the two of them? It feels like it's a terrible match now that it's gone wrong to the level that it has. I do wonder if it's kind of terrible planning that's made this go wrong because you've given him a five-year deal, you've called it a project this whole time and hired this young coach and you've given up seven months in. And the expectations on Potter are always going to be sky high, but there is obviously the need for a bedding-in period for both him, his staff and the new players that he's been given. It's just, it looked like too much all at once, really. Changing managers, changing squad, changing staff, changing ownership. There's no stability at Chelsea. And really, with that, you need the strongest character possible to just ride that storm. And Potter's not the strongest character. He's not someone who's experienced top level. He's not someone who's experienced that level of playing staff before or that kind of money being thrown at it. So it was kind of set up to fail. That's not to say he's blameless. He's definitely got a few things wrong at Chelsea. I'm sure we'll talk about them in a, in a moment. But yeah, it, it just wasn't an ideal matchup, really, when you consider the circumstances around it. And that's not new news just because he's been sacked this weekend or because they lost this weekend. We've been saying that for a long time, haven't we? Yeah, well, so it sounds like you're putting a majority of the blame squarely at uh, Todd Bowley and the board. Is it fair to say? Like the decision lay with them to recruit him. So is that where the blame should lie from now on? I think so with this one, because they they showed their naivety in the summer when you looked at their transfer recruitment that Bowley was in charge of in the summer of the place. And not much has changed since then. Now, they've brought in these co-sporting directors who will look to make the next decisions for Chelsea. And that is the right move. That is how that should be played out. But I just, I can't get behind the logic of building this project all at once and expecting it all to work out perfectly. No club ever does that. You look at a club like Man City, for example, they do refresh their squad, but it's only ever bit by bit, really. They look at a targeted area, they improve that area, they play for a season, they bed them in. We'll we'll talk about that later on when we come to the City game, but it's a slow process and Chelsea have tried to do too much too fast and then been surprised when it's not worked and, and Potter's the casualty of that, sadly. It's mad to see them down in 11th, isn't it? I think that's the optics of them being in the bottom half of the table that really kind of makes this look like it's now or never to kind of make this change, isn't it? Um, they're only above Palace. 
in the table. And Palace are in danger, let's not forget. So Chelsea are the worst of the teams that aren't struggling against relegation, um, which is embarrassing in some ways, isn't it? They've won 38.7% of the games that Graham Potter's been in charge for. Their second sacking of the season. It's meant to be a new Chelsea, Dave, but it's not really, is it? Um, We've talked about the board, but what did Potter get wrong, do you think? Oh, it's the whole circumstances around it are laughable, really, of what's been going on. Um, in terms of what he's got wrong, I think in his last game, you look at the selection, I think his selection's been a little bit all over the place. He's been tinkering and changing a lot of the uh, the lineups he's been fielding. Um, Reese James at centre-back is a strange one for me. Um, and then you're trying to shoehorn Cucurella into that back three as well, which is another strange decision when you've got um, obviously, a couple of centre backs on on the bench who are more than worthy, and Badi Ashil, um, who's actually been really impressive when he's played for Chelsea so far. Um, I just think, yeah, the selections have been very odd, and then playing Ruben Loftus Cheek at right wing back ahead of your best, probably arguably your best player in Reese James. And what actually stood out for me in this last game against Villa is how effective Chilwell was in that left wing back role, um, particularly in the first half. But then they had they offered nothing going down the right. Everything was going down that left hand side and Chilwell was their biggest threat basically who looked the most likely to score a goal. And it just it just really baffles me when you've got a talent like Reese James and you're playing and you're shoehorning him in to a centre back position. I just think that's criminal really. Um and that some of these decisions it does seem like it's backfired. I do, I do, I agree with Miles. I think that the way the ownership has dealt with the whole situation has been laughable. I think if you look even two or three weeks back, in obviously when the international break was in place, there was a lot of positive spin being placed on that they were still backing Graham Potter. They're saying it's a long-term project. I do actually feel as though because there have been a couple of managers that have become available since then. I think the th- the factor that Conte's been sacked, I think that's changed a lot. I don't know whether Chelsea could stomach the idea of Spurs getting Nagelsmann. I think that is has played a factor as well. Um, and I think they've, they've just pulled the trigger. And I think we've we've seen it coming, haven't we? We've just been wondering when it's going to happen. Mm. Um, but it's just bizarre considering what's come out from the club. They're saying they're going to back Graham Potter. The only thing is, they, whoever they bring in now, what are they going to achieve? Because they're in 11th place. There's only so much a manager can come in now and do. Yes, they're going to get time with the squad. They're going to get a bit of time to get an idea across, you know, their own ideas. But at the end of the day, that Graham Potter probably, I, I can't see him potentially them doing any worse than 11th this season. I don't think they would have gone down any further than what they were. What was the what was the worst, you know, that could happen if they just stayed with him until the end of the season, cut their losses at the end of the season? It's not good enough because whoever comes in now is going to have reservations about taking the job at this point in the season, whether they can really have an impact straight away. That's true. Yeah. I think Miles, Miles was saying the Champions League's on the horizon. I yeah. think that's really played a part, hasn't it? Can you see Potter beating Real Madrid? Absolutely not. Mm. And that's the only thing Chelsea have got to play for now. So they have to give that their all in their, whatever way that looks like. There are managers on the market right now that will do better in the Champions League than Potter would have if they can act quickly. It's difficult because I feel like they were back in Potter and back in the project for as long as possible. But now the optics look okay because actually 
if they do manage to get Nagelsmann in, that's a really positive PR spin because it's still a, a young project manager. And it's like, okay, well, we're not cutting that idea off and going for a Mourinho-type figure. We're still going to back a young coach to develop. But there was a better young coach available, someone who's got a 100% record in the Champions League this season. So it seems to me that they've just waited for... They weren't, I don't think Potter would be gone if Nagelsmann was still at Bayern right now. I think they probably would have waited. He probably would have had more of the season. But there was the option. It's mad. And Dave's right. It's mad, isn't it? The... I was going to say that if Tuchel never got sacked from Chelsea, he probably wouldn't be at Bayern right now. Therefore, Nagelsmann wouldn't even be available. So it's, it's a strange chain of events, isn't and it? And Tuchel should still be at Chelsea. I think that's apparent to everyone. He would manage this squad far better than Potter would have been able to. The things that Dave says he got wrong, they're not new Potter things. Potter used to tinker a lot at Brighton as well and change the mm-hmm. system. He's been hampered with injuries at, at Chelsea to a degree, but... I don't know what people expected of him in terms of a regular starting eleven. when all of a sudden he's got a squad full of players that cost a small fortune. You can't pick the same eleven every week because you can end up with someone like, I don't know, Raheem Sterling, who you've just spent £60 million on, sat on the bench furious. Nani Nadueke has gone into Chelsea and all right, he's young, his time will come, but he must have been fuming watching at the weekend and not starting that game. Because like Dave said, yeah. the right-hand side where he'd operate, they offered nothing down there. There's a whole squad that he's got to manage all of a sudden. He's just not used to that. It's an interesting time for them now. They've got to make a decision. There's talk that they might let Bruno stay to the end of the season because Nagelsmann doesn't want to take a job till the summer. That would be mental to me. That to me says you should have kept Potter. There's some noise if around you can get... as well, isn't there? Yeah, another one that would be bizarre. That, that doesn't make any sense to me. I think if you were going to do that, you may as well have kept Potter. The only reason to get rid of Potter now is if you can bring someone in who can basically use the league season, what's left of it as a pre-season, evaluate what he likes about that squad, who he needs to move on in the summer and then go from there. We said the same thing about Spurs, but Chelsea are in that position even more so with the Champions League still to play for. It's, it's a weird situation there now. It is. I mean, the Champions League is, is the only thing that can really get any kind of comfort from from this season but I mean in hindsight it's, it's easy to see like all the problems that we've laid out before us but surely the fact that they're they've, I think they've underfo- underperformed their XG by 7.4 this season they're just not scoring goals and the fact they've not signed a striker or a recognised number nine from all the 600 plus million that they've spent that has to be one of the major issues surely that, and whose fault that's is that? That's that sent to you in group they scored 21 goals in 22 games Meanwhile, Lukaku is starting to find form at Inter Milan and Belgium. Mm. It's it's bizarre. Yeah, it is. He's still, well, he's still a Chelsea player. Um, so whether he has a future or not, who knows? But interesting manager. times for Chelsea and uh, interesting to see where they go next. But let's not take anything away from Aston Villa. Miles, I'm going to give you a moment just to talk about not just Villa's performance against Chelsea because the whole Potter situation takes away a bit of the limelight from a very good win for Villa. Yeah. But Villa's record since Emery's been in charge... Like, is it nine wins from 15 he's had since since November when he joined the club? Yeah. That's incredible. And that's among there with, like, the top, what, three, four teams in the league in that same time period? That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you must be thrilled right now, surely. Oh, it's, it's incredible. Only Arsenal and Man City have picked up more points than us in the league since Emery took over. And City have only got three more points than us. And that's when they beat us. So, actually, it's an incredible record. You've got to be absolutely tough with what he's managing to achieve. This performance wasn't even our best at times. In the in the second half, we were much, much better. In the first half, we were a little bit too open, but we were clinical going forward. And that's what happens when you've got someone like Watkins in great form. That's something that Chelsea were really missing. 
I do wonder if the managers were in opposite dugouts and maybe he had a bit more of a firepower there, would Chelsea fans be happy? I, Unai Emery is an absolutely world-class manager and he's with us right now. I think Chelsea could do a lot worse than someone like him. Not that I'm trying to be an advocate for him moving on, but it, it was just, that was the telling thing for us. Emery had a game plan. He knew how to address the problems in the game at halftime. He took Bubakar Kamara off, who was on a booking and, and looking a bit leggy after coming back from his injury. Changed to five at the back and actually Chambers made a massive difference. We had a world-class keeper in goal who's just ready to, to deal with whatever you're throwing at him. Whereas Kepa, he doesn't deal well with shots outside the box, does he? And that's McGinn's speciality. So it was great for Villa. We're exploiting teams above us now. That's a really big thing for us. As we're trying to fly up the table and, and push for Europe late on, you have to beat the teams above you and leapfrog them. They've done that this weekend. You can't ask for much more than that. It's It's phenomenal. I'm so happy with it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Top half um, when things look so bleak, so so recently it feels as well. It's an amazing turnaround. Well, and you said the word clinical, didn't you? Two shots on target and two goals kind of sums that up really, doesn't it? Yeah, the fact that we were three points off relegation when he took over and it just looked like our season was going to be battling out with Southampton, Leeds, Forest, teams like that. And instead now we sit, what, six points off the top four? Two well, that's my next question six? to you. Do you look at, seventh place sixth place how high do you look because a lot rests on teams like Brighton mm-hmm. I think have got two big games in hand which counts for nothing in the Premier League but if they win those they're very much in the conversation for sort of top five aren't they so where do Villa look now it's in our hands that I don't really think they'll have a specific aim or a place they're just going to take it as it goes because we're playing the teams above us you start bringing people back into the conversation like Brentford and Brighton during this weekend was the perfect thing for Villa I think you have to yeah. just take anything as a bonus now because we thought we were going to be a season where we were competing with relegation and now look at us. We are going to push for Europe. So if we got Conference League, that would be a phenomenal achievement. It automatically improves your summer recruitment and I think we'd have a really good chance at winning that next year. We've got a proven European Cup manager and actually when you look at the calibre of teams that are in it this season, I mean, West Ham are doing really well at it and they're right down the bottom of the Premier League at the moment. So... Yeah, I think you've got to be optimistic. Europa League would be phenomenal. I think Conference League is the one that I'd take. If you offered it to me now, I'd take it. It's good to see John McGinn back in the team and scoring as well. Hit the bar too, it couldn't be more. His return to the team um, just kind of shows how the squad is all playing for Unai Emery as well. They're waiting for their chance and they're taking it. Good to see McGinn back though, right? Yeah, and he gave a really brilliant interview afterwards actually because obviously he'd been away with Scotland he continues to score goals for Scotland. That's just what he does. Yeah. He hadn't scored in 16 months for Villa, though. And you could tell oh, that wow. was something that was weighing on him. Now, under Gerrard, he was playing a much deeper role. And he actually talked about Gerrard in the post-match and said it was someone that put a lot of faith in him. And he, he always got on really well with him. And he felt like he hadn't repaid him because his performances weren't good enough. But he feels like his level is getting much higher now. His understanding of where to move is a lot better. He, he just looks like a confident player again. And that Scotland camp probably did him the world of good. But he would have wanted to get that monkey off his back and get an early goal for Villa. Mm. So to do it in the first game, it's brilliant. He even talked about his technique with that shot. He said he he felt like recently he'd been smashing things like that with his laces, watching it fly over the bar, and then his head dropped. So he thought about, actually, no, I'm going to place this one. In, in that moment, he has that instinct to think about 
what's gone right for me? What can I do here now? And that's that's the John McGinn villain need. Someone who's composed on the ball, someone who's calculated. Because he is actually really intelligent as a footballer. He moves the game forward so well. And you want to see that from a player like him. I, it was hard at the start of the season. He was definitely a bit of a scapegoat for, for Villa's form under Gerrard because people weren't sure about him being the captain. His performances dropped off a cliff. But he's someone that's given so much to Villa as a club. He's a phenomenal servant to Villa and actually, I think, has to go down as, as a bit of a legend, really, for what he did in the Championship and in our first couple of seasons back. So you want him to be part of this Emery revolution that kicks on to Europe. He's earned that, absolutely. Amazing uh, positive momentum for Aston Villa, I think it's fair to say. But at the opposite end of the table, Dave, I'll go to you with this one. Leicester City slide into the bottom three, second from bottom, and finally kind of axe Brendan Rodgers at a time when it almost feels like he can't really do any more to try and influence what's happening to Leicester. So the question for you, Dave, is what is happening to Leicester and how much of that is down to Brendan Rodgers as well? Because... He was being, he's been given a lot of goodwill, and rightly so. You know, he's brought a lot of unprecedented success to the club, won the FA Cup for the first time in their history, but he had to go, really, didn't he? I think there's been a sense of inevitability about the outcome, hasn't there, really, for a while. It's just been, everyone's been wondering when it's going to happen. Um, I think they were probably looking at potentially um, looking at a severance package at the end of the season um, from the way things are going, because performances results there wasn't any consistency whatsoever so I don't think it's a surprise to anyone to see it happen but I just think it's probably more of a surprise because they've actually let it go on for this long um which is you know strange in itself um but I mean we've always said haven't we particularly over the last few months and even towards the end of last season that it's it's been dangerous for Leicester because there's so many players in that squad who you know their, their futures are in doubt um, so you've got to wonder whether the focus is fully on you know, the team's performance on the team. There's a lot of individuals in there who are probably looking elsewhere as well. So that, there, there's a lot of factors um, that have made it really difficult for Brendan Rodgers to do his job well. Um, you look, obviously, the lack of investment in the team over particularly the last year. Um, and that immediately handicaps you. Um, and surely, as as a as a squad member, you've got to be looking and thinking, well, why are we not, you know, why are we not investing? And because when you get new players in and new talent, it automatically gives you a lift. So you can understand that the obviously the morale has got to be a low point in that squad amongst the squad. And I just feel as though it was coming to a head, and it's it sounds like they've not got any planning place for a replacement so what, where do they go yeah. from here well, I think it's another thing where the optics of a defeat against Crystal Palace in the way they down tools the place seemingly didn't seem to try um, they scored against Palace and, and kind of galvanised them really to kind of come back and score in the final final minute of the game that kind of defeat is going to like leave a lasting long lingering memory in the theory's minds isn't it and I think it kind of made the feeling of, yeah, he should go even more prominent. And um, I think Rogers has a lot of good feeling. And I think a lot of the the announcement kind of said that, you know, there was a lot of goodwill towards him. You could tell that it was a lot of regret attached to this decision. They did give him, I think, a lot of time to try and turn it around. But their slide, even since they beat, beat Villa, it seems like ages ago now, has been huge, hasn't it? Despite new signings being put into place. But what is Leicester, what is Leicester's plan now, Miles? Because they look like probably one of the least informed teams down there. 
and they've just made this decision, is anyone going to come in and make that any better for them, do you think? Is there any such thing as a new manager bounce when the club is so negative at the minute? I don't really know what Leicester are hoping to achieve now, because if they wanted stability and they felt like Rodgers' time was up, that was evident a long time ago. And I don't see anyone on the market right now, managerial market, that comes in and turns this around very quickly. If if that's what Leicester wanted as a short term, they would have acted sooner and got Daishin, for example. They didn't do that. So where do, where do Leicester go from here? Because it seems like for years their plan was buy cheap, sell for a high price, and then reinvest that money in the squad. And then the last two years, they bought cheap, sold for a high price, and stopped. So you look at that squad that Leicester have got now, you've probably got three players that if they went down would get bought by other clubs and one of them's out of contract in the summer anyway unless I'm forgetting people Yuri Tielemans he'll get a move somewhere Madison will end up at Newcastle Harvey Barnes is a very good footballer Yeah. short of that I actually don't think there's a lot of quality in this Leicester squad you've not seen Pats and Dakar fit in the way that you wanted to Wilfred indeed he's dropped off a cliff really over the last year or two the defence is so much poorer if, than it's ever been. Even a couple of the players that brought in, I don't think Suter's been particularly good for them since he's well, been there. No, and again, from a championship club, right? So mm. there's only kind of one place that Leicester are looking. I, I'm disappointed because Leicester were kind of the neutral's favourite for a really long time. They had that miraculous season. Rogers did incredibly well with them and kept trying to challenge for top four, but maybe he should have left a bit sooner when things were looking good because actually his stock was so high. There was talk of him getting yeah. some of the biggest jobs. I don't really know where Rogers' level is now and I don't know what Leicester's level is. It's I feel for him. I actually feel for him because if you don't buy anyone for two transfer windows basically and you let all your best players go, Madison has had two long injury spells and when he came back they had a better form don't really know what Leicester expected to achieve this season. He's not blameless. He's a calamity at times, Rodgers. And I think all you need to do is look at their defensive work and how they defend set pieces for the last two seasons. And the fact that he's not addressed that shows that it probably wasn't going to work for him. But it's just mm-hmm. odd timing to me because I just I don't I don't know where Leicester go from here. It is. They're scrapping for their lives, aren't they? And I think their running isn't that good either. I don't think mm-hmm. they've got many what you call easy games but then Leicester have got such a talented team on paper we've said for ages that like West Ham in some ways how can they go down but no team's too good to go down there's so many teams involved in this relegation battle look how many teams are kind of taking action right now with this many games to go down at the bottom it's probably not the last one we'll see either it's a really strange season isn't it and for Leicester I can see why they're doing it they're seeing that the benefit of, of making change has got to be better than what they're seeing at the minute, which is a real decline. But again, wow. as to who they go for, I have no idea. I'm not sure that that's true, whether there is a benefit to making changes always. Look at Southampton when they got rid of Hootall. Did that get better? That's a manager true, who knew yeah. the club. He was in a familiar position. He'd been there, done that. And probably Southampton would be in a better position now had they stuck with him. I'm not convinced that Palace are going to really appreciate the change come the end of the season. All right, they won this weekend, but is Roy Hodgson really the man to give them long-term success compared to what Vieira had achieved last season? I think there are going to be a lot of clubs that have acted too fast because they panic about the idea of relegation because the financial gap that then brings cause some real, real issues. And if you don't get the appointment right, you're stuffed. Look at Villa. Villa last season, when they brought Gerard in, they got the appointment wrong. They tried something based on 
who the director of football knew rather than who was the right man for the job. And it mm. didn't work out properly for it. This time, they acted because they had a plan and they could get a quality manager in. You look at Leicester, you look at Palace, you look at even Southampton, the fact they've got an interim right now. There's not an obvious person for them. And that could do them real damage. That's why West Ham are holding on to David Moyes. Because there's no better man out there for them right now. And that actually might yeah. be enough to keep them up. Well, there are a few managers now on the market after the sacking. So obviously Graham Potter's looking for a job. I can see him fitting well into Leicester. Yeah. I really can because he needs to rebuild his reputation. I don't think his stock is high enough to get a big profile job. Brendan Rodgers is also available. I think he's a good fit for Tottenham. They eyed him up a couple of years ago when his stock was really high. Maybe they need to sort of pick a manager like him now. Who knows? Dave, what are your thoughts, man? Yeah, we. I think we did mention, didn't we, a few months ago when Leicester were in turmoil and we were wondering how Rodgers was still in the job. We were saying that you know it would be the ideal time for them to get Graham Potter because he was doing so well at Brighton. Um, I, I think it would be a good move, personally. I, I think... Whoever goes into that job, it's not going to be easy, though, just be, just because mm. of, obviously, everything we've mentioned there about, obviously, the players, um, you know, the lack of investment in there, whether players focuses fully on the team and whether they're actually giving their all doesn't seem so to me. Um, so it's going to be really di- difficult, but I feel like it'd be a good long-term prospect for, for Leicester to look at. Um, who knows where Brendan Rodgers is going to go? Your, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> I think Spurs would be a good fit, yeah. personally. Um, more than Potter. I think Potter going to Spurs feels like the same kind of scenario as he's been in at Chelsea in some I, ways. i got to disagree. I think that's the one that makes sense to me. I think really? if, you, if you're if you Graham Potter now, you're not touching Leicester with a barge pole because you're putting yourself straight into a relegation battle where you could fail and then find yourself a championship manager. And actually, there's a higher risk of your stock falling even further at Leicester. I think Spurs will look at it, particularly if Chelsea get Nagelsmann, that's their first target gone. They've got to reconsider then who they're going for. And Potter was brought in at Chelsea to be a project manager. And Spurs, we said the other week, they need a project manager. They don't want a Mm. big personality like Conte or Mourinho who are bigger than the club. They want someone who wants to build something. I actually think that Potter's reputation hasn't been harmed that much by this because... People will look at it and go, okay, but really, the amount that Chelsea threw at him all at once, that was a hard situation for anyone to manage. Spurs might look at it and go, I reckon we could make that work for him. Think about Potter's problems. His problem is getting players to score goals. He goes to Spurs, he's got Harry Kane. You can't struggle to make Harry Kane score. It's impossible. He, He lives and breathes goals. So that's sorted for you. What he does do is solidify your defence most of the time. Maybe not so much at Chelsea when it was inconsistent who he was playing, but he did that for Brighton. And Spurs' defence right now is the poorest part of the team. They want to achieve something without spending much money. And that's exactly what he did at Brighton, whereas Chelsea tried to do the opposite with him. I think Potter is a much better fit for Spurs, and I think you can sell it with quite good PR as well. And plus, we know Spurs like a former Chelsea manager. They've had Meridia, they had Conte, they wanted Tuchel. It's mad. I've seen Nagelsmann actually fitting quite well at Spurs. I think Nagelsmann's not a good fit for Chelsea in some ways. But then, apart from Nagelsmann, I don't know who Chelsea go for. You know, if there was a plan B for Chelsea... Luis Enrique. Actually, yeah. He's probably the only one where I think he's the good balance between managing egos, which is what this next manager needs, and also tactically being quite sound. Yeah, Zidane's been mentioned as well. 
Yeah, I don't think Nagelsmann should come to England yet. I think it's too soon for him to come to England because the British press, you've seen what they did for Potter. They don't give you much time. And Nagelsmann's a fantastic tactician, but he's still very young. And dealing with the the level of money that England throws at you, I think that could be quite problematic. I see him better in Syria, maybe. Maybe taking over from Allegri at some point if Juventus decide to make a change or into Milan. That might be a good way for him to just keep building that reputation before he comes to England. Whereas Enrique, I think, has said recently that he wants to try try his hand in England. And I think he would be better at managing that current Chelsea squad. Yeah, possibly. I think, well, we all know now that the, the Chelsea model kind of relies on qualifying for the Champions League. So you've got to think about which manager can do that next season because it's not going to happen this season, is it? Mm. Same with Spurs in some ways. They need to qualify for sort of Champions League football to kind of keep buying players at a high level. One team that might well be in the Champions League next season, though, um, Miles, is Newcastle. Uh, we'll talk about Newcastle's win against Manchester United. It was a game where if United had won it, Newcastle United, not Manchester United, it would have brought them level on points. And that's what's happened. But the goal difference between the two is absolutely huge. Manchester United couldn't really afford to lose this game because the momentum that would lose would be huge. And it's now in Newcastle's favour, isn't it? Massively in the top four race. Yeah, and it's not a result that I saw coming because Newcastle's form of late, they won their last two games, but we're not really. They, they have started to drop off a little bit, Newcastle. And obviously, we saw the cup final. United beat them with some ease. Granted, they were missing Nick Pope, but it just seemed to me that this might be a challenge too far for Newcastle and we were going to see them kind of fall into fifth or sixth. And that would still be a, an absolutely incredible season. But it felt like everyone stepped up for Newcastle. The intensity of the way they played, the effort their midfield put in in terms of pressing Man United, trying to create chances. United looked happy to try and catch Newcastle on the counter and then looked lost on the ball. So Newcastle were just picking them apart and the midfield was where this game was won. Plus, mm. I think we saw the difference of having a, a really quality number nine up front because Veghorst couldn't get into the game. He wasn't linking the play with other players. Whereas Alexander Isak, he was just phenomenal again. And he's hit some really rich form recently with the Newcastle since coming back from that injury. This is the player they were hoping they were going to buy. Although he didn't score in this game, the way he connected play up front for Newcastle, I thought was brilliant. So, yeah, you've got to uh, applaud what Eddie Howe is doing there, the, the way that they've invested. All right, we can talk about where the money comes from all we like. And I think every time we talk about Newcastle, it's got to be something that we think about. But the way this team are clicking, they are ahead of schedule. And actually, getting the Champions League means the floodgates open for them, doesn't it? They, they're going to be so much more available to do more. I do feel like this has made Newcastle kind of favourites for the top four now, Dave, out of the, the cluster that's around them as well. I mean, putting United aside for a minute, is this a momentum that could be continued for Newcastle, do you think? I think they've still got some tough games. I think it's too early still to say they're favourites. Um, they've still got to play Arsenal. Um, they've still got to play City, I think, as well. Or is it Liverpool? Um, do you know why they might be favourites, though? Because they're competing with Spurs, United, and we thought Liverpool, who are all incredibly inconsistent, got, and Newcastle yeah, that's, don't that's concede goals. I mean, United haven't won in the last three in the Premier League. All of a sudden, they look, you know, all at sea. So they've got momentum with them, haven't they? That's the that's the main thing. They've they don't. We keep waiting. It's one it's one of those, isn't it, where we're kind of thinking they're going to drop off at some point, and they just seemingly aren't going to. Their consistency has been, you know, phenomenal. Um, everyone in this game, for their, that nobody really put in less than a 7 out of 10. I thought everyone was outstanding. Mm. Um, mm. Let's talk about Bruno, because 
that was the perfect midfield. Sure, it's a Disney film. That was, <laughs> that was the perfect midfield performance. You know, in, a, mm. in and out of possession. You had 91% passing completion rate. He covered 11.1 kilometres, the second most on the pitch. Oh, it's, I just don't understand how he wasn't sought after by any other team apart from Newcastle. Because he wasn't this good at Leon. He was good no, at yeah. Leon, but he's definitely found a new level since he was there. Mm. And to be fair to him, I reckon I could have done a good job in midfield for Newcastle this weekend with the way United <laughs> played. Let's just let's just throw that out there. Without Casemiro, it was an easy job for him, wasn't it? Oh, with it. Yeah, definitely. I was gonna say United Manchester United's midfield, Dave, was um almost kind of non existent. I mean Scott McTominay's been in good form, but he couldn't get a foothold on the game at all. Marcel Sabitzer is the same. And they tried to go down the flanks quite a lot, didn't they, Manchester United? And that didn't work either. And then they brought Sancho on instead of Anthony, who was actually doing okay. He was the only threat Manchester United had for a while. Mm. It was a strange game for United. And it was a strange set of decisions from Eric Ten Hag, really, as well, wasn't it? There wasn't much difference between this game and the Liverpool game, apart from the defence were a lot better um, for United. If if we weren't at it in defence, I thought Varane, um, Martinez and Anthony were the only players that actually can kind of um, hold their hands up and say, actually, you know, there was just no intensity, no aggression. They were losing second balls consistently all game. It was an absolute mess. And it just goes to show, like, if you look at the amount of chances that Newcastle created, I think their XG for this game was 3.86. And that yeah. that wasn't it. Wouldn't have been flattering for them if they won four or five nil because they had a lot of chances, um, and a lot of that was down to you know th- them just being far better than United, particularly in midfield, being first to everything. Um, th- there was no midfield for United, like you mentioned. Everyone was all at sea. It was a bit of a strange one because I think coming into this, looking at for instance McTominay on the back of the form they had over the international break, you thought, oh, maybe he can actually show something. And against a team that is rumoured to be interested in buying him in the summer as well. But he had an absolute shocker. Um, but you don't, you don't want to obviously um, play down how well Newcastle played. They were absolutely phenomenal. And I've seen a lot of fans saying it's their, their best game this season. So that's One good. thing I w- will say is it's made a bit easier for you to go out and get a second goal when the opposition manager takes off both centre-backs. In that, I, I know you were chasing the game, but please explain Palestri and Lindelof for Martinez and Varane at the same time. <laughs> that didn't make any sense. No. And then Callum Wilson just free for a header from a, a simple set piece. To be Why honest, did he do that? You, you can say, oh, wow, he put Lindelof, didn't he, at the centre of a back three? Um, but even well, without that, really a back United, three. Never, United, once they took Anthony off, they never looked like scoring. Sancho came on, was absolutely terrible. Um, but even Rashford in this game just really looked a shadow of himself, and it's just so is strange. It's so strange when a manager before a game is saying that every game is a final. Do you tell me which player kind of agreed with that, or looks like they were playing as though that was a final because there weren't? It was just completely non-existent mm. for me. And there was that stupid comment afterwards that I've heard too many times about Man United of the other team wanted it more. Oh, yeah. I hate that comment. You're a professional footballer. You cannot get on the pitch and say, oh, the other player wanted it more. What? Why it's don't been you happening. want it? It's been happening for too long, though, isn't that. it? You look yeah, at even under, Sol- Sol- really under Solskjaer, under Solskjaer, under Rangnick, even now, we've seen it happen numerous times this season against Villa, terrible, against Liverpool, 
you know, really poor first two games of the season. How many times can you keep making this excuse up? Uh, for me, there is there's too far too many players in this team, in this squad, that just aren't good enough for Man United. And we've seen that time and again over the years. Um, and it's been very evident in certain games. I don't want to band on about it too much because... But to be fair, you say that, there are loads of players in the Newcastle squad who aren't good enough for Newcastle anymore and shouldn't be in a top four Premier League club. Like, they're midfield. They've got, what, Jacob Murphy, Longstaff playing. Like, they're not players that you'd imagine to be top four players. So, it's not really an United, if you're not good enough to be playing at that level, at least go out and put some desire into it. And then to come out after the match and admit, yeah, we didn't want it as much as the other team. It's the mentality though, isn't it, Mike? You look at what what Newcastle are doing this year and the mentality of those players and what Eddie Mm. Howe has actually managed to, you know, forge together, they've they've got more bottle than United, put it that way. It's a it's a strange one to have watched it with you, Miles, as well. We were watching the game together, weren't <laughs> we? Did, we? Yeah. And you see all the decisions being made and you could see my reaction in real time. Taking both centre-backs off, I was just like, what is he doing? And you even said there's no height in the team now. And straight away, Newcastle made the decision to start putting balls into the box and that's what kind of yeah. finished us off, really, wasn't it? Yeah, Callum Wilson's not so, the tallest, but it didn't matter. No, <laughs> so predictable. Um, so I think Eric Ten Hag has got to take a lot of blame for this as well. He's made a few mistakes this season, but... I think in the grand scheme of things, Dave, we are still in a fighting position to finish top four. So we have to be optimistic. But I think fatigue plays a small part in the way we've been playing the last few games, don't you? Oh, definitely. You know, I think if I remember correctly, I think Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford, um, along with Martinez, have played the most amount of games in Europe out of any other player, which is ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Russell's just been on holiday to New York, and he? he should have been well rested. <laughs> well, yeah, you'd think so. I, I don't know. It's you, you hear about all of this all the need of rest, but then you hear a lot of managers say that you know matches a lot of matches. It keeps the kind of the momentum going. It keeps you match fit. You don't want to be rested too. You know, don't want to be too rested. So I, th- I don't know what to make of that. I, th- I think that's just excuses for me. I don't want to be relying on excuses for why the team aren't doing very well. Fair enough. We'll finish the podcast on a strange footnote, really. The Manchester City-Liverpool rivalry has been a headline for years, hasn't it? It's now bottom of this podcast agenda because Liverpool have sunk so far as well. And for me, that's <laughs> the only consolation this weekend is that Man City beat Liverpool quite convincingly 4-1. But just a bit of a word on Manchester City. They played excellently in this game, didn't they? They went behind to a Mo Salah goal, but did not look like relinquishing a defeat to Liverpool at all. And one man in particular, Miles, our Jack, as you call him, Jack Grealish. Um, <laughs> is he still your Jack now? Is this performance man, against against Liverpool for City probably his best in a City shirt so far, do you think? He was everywhere. I think much to your displeasure, I did say to you at the weekend, I just really hope Man City win the Champions League this year so Grealish can go. I've won it all. I can go back to Villa now. <laughs> <laughs> Keep dreaming, yeah, mate. He, he was phenomenal. He was absolutely brilliant. I mean, let's be totally honest, it's easy for anyone to look phenomenal when they're coming up against this Liverpool defence, particularly if you're going to play against Trent Alexander-Arnold. But he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he looks like he's finally settled into a system since the World Cup. He's just been electric. I think it's his eighth assist in that time now. 
And this is what happens under Guardiola. He's not the first attacking or wide player we've seen move to Man City and take some time to bed into a system. We saw the same thing happen with Mares, Bernardo Silva. It, it's hard to go from being a star creative player at one club to fitting into such a thought through system as Man City have. And he said that himself, but we're now starting to see the results of it. Now, let's be honest. He's not the sharpest tool in in the box, is he? So we don't expect him to necessarily pick these things up as quick. But you see the absolute opposite now, that he's learnt from a great coach. He's learnt from really top players around him, like Kevin De Bruyne. You can see they've got a really good chemistry and relationship. When De Bruyne provides the assist for Grealish in this game, the celebration of De Bruyne alone shows you what this Man City team are really fighting for right now. And I still think the league is Arsenal's. But Man City are definitely going to put up a hell of a fight. And with Grealish in the kind of form he's in now, they've got one of the league's best players to, to help them yeah. do it. Absolutely. They've scored four goals against a Liverpool side without Erling Haaland. Like, that shows the depth they've got, the, the talent they've got, and how much fight they've got left in them. Absolutely. Yeah, the performance from uh, Grealish was such an all-round performance. He even ended up stopping a clear goal-scoring opportunity for Salah, didn't he? It's a crucial never, moment in the game. Never saw him do that before, I'll be totally honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. And I think there's this kind of um, this this feeling that, that Grealish has had to restrict his game a little bit since joining Man City because Pep Guardiola is so meticulous. But what I saw in this game was Jack Grealish playing, yes, with discipline, but also loads of freedom. I'm thinking with his football brain, and you might say he's not the sharpest tool in the box, but from a football perspective, yeah, he is. he's so switched on to his surroundings. And I think he now realises that what Pep Guardiola wants from him is just somebody who thinks with this 360 football vision, but doesn't go too far out of line. And this game was a perfect example, I think, of, of Jack Grealish actually comfortable in his surroundings for the first time in a while. Uh, and it's good to see. He's like the anti-Ben White. He loves football and, and just wants to be a part of football all of the time. So it was nice because I think scoring was a big thing for him in this game because he wants to add goals to his game at City. And the way he played, he deserved it. And you saw him start to take a few efforts as he got more and more confident in the game. Yeah. So the fact that it worked out for him, it's brilliant. You can't begrudge him. Dave, have you um, been impressed with Grealish's form since the World Cup? Because I think his stats stack up as probably one of the form players in the Premier League since then, haven't, haven't they? So what do you make of him? And uh, can you see him holding down a place in City's starting lineup now? Because he's been in and out of the, the team, really, hasn't he? I think it's been evident for a while. He's been in the starting lineup for a, a while, obviously. Phil Foden's been the one that's who's obviously dropped out more often than not. Um, this is his best game for City by far. He was like a man possessed in this game. And you you nailed it perfectly, Mike. I think there's been a lot of games where he's almost been kind of a little bit too cautious, I think, in how he wants to, to play the game. And I think he actually he actually played the perfect game in terms of recycling possession and actually really trying to affect the game. And you could see, especially obviously when he got the assist and the goal, he looked like the player that we know he can be and the one that we actually saw, obviously, when he first came into the England team. He 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 really now, as the penny dropped, that's the question because he really needs to take it upon himself to actually affect games every single week, whether he's obviously scoring, whether he's an assist, and he needs to put that pressure on himself to say, you know, I'm good enough. I should be scoring these goals. I should be making goals every single game because we know he's got the talent. That's the thing. But do you know what the biggest change I think is, and what's worked out really well for him, and it seems mad to say, Jacques Cancelo leaving. Because all of a sudden, that 
wing is his to attack. Mm. And he hasn't got... It felt like really often he was playing the ball to Cancelo for him to provide the ball in. And now they've got a much more defensive left-back playing there. It's almost like he's got that freedom again and it's up to him to express that side and use that side wisely. And that seems to have just given him the world of confidence. It's like Pepper's backed him by saying, I don't need an attacking player in that area. You can go and do that now. And that's that's a massive thing, I think, for the development of his game. Yeah, I think it's been crucial to see City still stay in the champ and the um, title race as well. Um, we don't want to see a runaway title winner ever, do we? I mean, Arsenal have been pretty close to that at times, but City have shown their quality. And in this game in particular, it looked like they were determined to stay within touching distance as well. So mm. title race still on, relegation battle still very much on. And this week actually is a full, full fixture of, of games as well. Like the midweek games, are, there's loads going on. And then at the weekend, there's a whole round of fixtures as well. So next time we talk, guys, a lot of football to get through. And who knows, maybe another sacking or two. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is there a record? See people watch out. Is it in the last year there's been yeah, 12 Premier League sackings? managerial changes now this season Ridiculous. it's a record I mean a couple of them are like Potter going to Chelsea wasn't a sacking obviously but 13 yeah. changes mental nine we'll see what happens in the next week or so <laughs> hey but uh, yeah. until then guys thanks for your time and we'll speak soon cheers see you later yeah.